You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 28th of January 2020 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View coming up today. Now this reality appears to be somewhat hitting. People are perhaps having to engage with aspects of what Brexit really means, which previously seemed rather intangible and will suddenly become quite tangible. My guests Alex von Tunzelman and Michael Binion will assess the UK's likeliest path to the promised sunlit uplands of Brexit and take a look at the day's other big stories, including how long is too long for an election campaign as Jacinda Ardern sets an interminable course for New Zealand's next election. And do we need rules around sports banter in the office so as not to alienate those who really could not care less about the previous evening's match. Plus, no matter your view on Brexit, this week feels anticlimactic. Nearly half a century of continental cooperation will end at precisely 11pm on Friday, the sort of time that passes without you even realising it. The Brexit view from Monocle's editorial floor. I'm Andrew Muller. Monocle's house view starts now. Welcome to the show. I'm joined by Alex von Tunzelman, the historian, author and screenwriter, and Michael Binion, foreign affairs specialist for The Times. We will start here in the UK, presently spending its last week as a member of the European Union. Having spent three and a half years engaged in a rancorous, divisive and tedious argument over whether the country was really going to do this, the country can now look forward to a rancorous, divisive and tedious argument of indeterminate length about how it is really going to do this. It has been characteristic of the Brexit tendency from the off, that it has been rather longer on vague promises and imaginary grievances than it has on policy detail. Alex, first of all, is there any hope that this stage of the argument will be slightly more detail-focused than the previous? I mean, it would be quite refreshing, wouldn't it? It'd be something. To have some actual facts as opposed to opinions um, in this debate at all. I think what we're sort of seeing happen now, and I mean, even the front page of the Times today was talking about, you know, um, the European Court of Justice having jurisdiction in the UK even after Brexit. I mean, these are things that actually have been being said for the last four years. Um, and then sort of now this reality appears to be somewhat hitting. People are perhaps having to engage with aspects of what Brexit really means, which previously seemed um, rather intangible and will suddenly become quite tangible. So, you know, if, if this goes to plan and we do this over the next 11 months, then some real decisions are going to have to be made. Uh, and of course, Boris Johnson is sitting there with a large majority, quite you know, effectively unopposed, um, and will have a lot of leeway, I think, to make those decisions. But uh, what he faces really is not the domestic situation, but his negotiations with the EU, in which he might find that he has a lot less leeway. Well, exactly that. Uh, Michael, we have heard more than once over the last three and a half years that, you know, the phony war is over. Now this gets serious. Now decisions have to be made. Um, Have we actually reached that point or are we going to find another way to spend the next however long conducting an inane culture war over things that no sane person actually cares about? (laughs) I think we've more or less reached the point now. Certainly next month when they really start negotiations in earnestness. uh, The problem is that there is a deadline, a real deadline this time. And if we don't get a trade deal approved, that's the main thing, the trade deal. There are all sorts of other areas that have got to be negotiated. But the main trade deal with the EU is the main one. If that can't be approved, then we're into unknown territory again. And then 
Boris might be tempted to say, we'll walk away. In fact, he won't do it. I mean, he would be very, very foolish to uh, disregard the fact that all business is telling him, get a deal done and get a deal that actually doesn't disrupt British industry and business. Because Boris needs the money. He can't possibly afford to disrupt British industry with something that takes us away from our main trading partners uh, by refusing whatever the compromise will, will emerge. He needs the money to pay for all these promises that he made to much of Britain during the election campaign. So he needs to keep the economy going. And for that, he needs to keep Britain more or less aligned with the EU, whatever the rhetoric. Um, Alex, Michael there invokes the name of the Prime Minister and his former rival as, as, as Brussels <laughs> correspondent, um, Boris Johnson. It strikes me that one of the, the curios- one of the many curiosities of our current situation is that we don't know what sort of Brexit the actual Prime Minister wants. No, and I suppose the real question is whether he knows himself. Um, (laughs) Having sort of changed direction on this several times, famously having written the uh, two articles before the referendum, one supporting staying in the EU and one supporting Brexit. I think we can all see that Boris Johnson himself has been on, shall we say, a journey, um, as they would put it in film and television. Um, Yes, but but where to? Well, I suppose (laughs) that is still rather unclear. Um, I mean, you know, but this is the thing. I mean, you know, now there is, we are in the case, I mean, as Michael says, there are now actual hard deadlines. Decisions are going to have to be made. And there's, I think there's only so much that this sort of sense that the government has been operating sort of on the power of positive thinking. You know, that you've got Liz Trust tweeting these hashtags yesterday, like, you know, Britain is great, you know, trade is good. And I think we're sort of going, these are wonderful aspirations, of course, marvellous. Who could disagree? But actually something concrete is going to have to happen. You know, for instance, on a trade deal, there are quite clear choices. It's not enough to say it's good and we like it. There are going to have to be choices, compromise, trade-offs, and some of them people possibly won't like. Uh, Now, the government does have this privilege of not having much opposition. I mean, at the moment, Labour's in a leadership contest, and of course... um, And and plans to be for the next several uh, million years. Exactly. I mean, and who knows what the outcome of that will be as well. Um, And of course, internally, you know, with a very large majority, there's not much internal opposition within the Conservative Party either. So domestically, uh, Boris Johnson has a sort of, you know, assumption of a reasonable level of support and, and not too much opposition, but internationally it will be different. I suspect we will also be seeing much revival of the idea of trying to paint the EU as the foe and the aggressor, which is difficult given that we actually do want to trade deal with them. Um, if they're constantly being presented as they're stopping us from having what we want, well, they also read British papers and watch British television, so um, they might sort of take that to heart rather in the negotiations. Uh, Michael, that that does preempt a question I, I did want to get into, which is that we have now surely reached the point at which Brexiters do have to stop blaming literally everybody else uh, for everything that goes wrong, because they have now got what they wanted. They own this. Um, are we likely to see a slightly more realistic and responsible attitude or is it going to be the thing, as as Alex rather bleakly suggests, that no, everything that goes wrong will still be somebody else's fault? Well, I think they will have to modify their tune a little bit because they've got to make some compromises, otherwise there will be no deal at all. Uh, On the other hand, they can save their wrath for some of the rest of the world because at the same time, Britain's got to start negotiating other trade deals with all those other countries where we need to have our own separate independent trade deal, such as the United States, such as Japan, such as, well, virtually every other part of the world. Now, that is going to be very difficult. And the most difficult of all, of course, 
will be the United States, particularly at the moment where there are a whole lot of big issues uh, dividing Britain from the US. Now, by nature, Brexiteers are going to wave the flag for Trump because they all think that Trump, well, not all, but most, are very much in his corner. That may be, of course, a short-term proposition. Well, it may be, but I think increasingly people think, well, it's going to be there for another four years as well. Uh, Whatever it is, there's going to be a tough trade negotiation with America and not an easy one at all. And Britain is loath to criticise America, but they, they will soon find the Americans are extremely hard and one might even say unpleasant negotiators. Uh, Alex, I'm wondering as well what is going to happen to that energy that was unleashed on the other side of the argument, because we're familiar now with the the Brexit view of the world, and as you correctly pointed out earlier, we're still going to be subjected a bit to a... Well, actually, probably to quite a lot uh, of putting the great back in Britain, waving the flag, um, and so forth, but... It's quite weird that an entire new political identity was created in this country within the last four years. The the Remainer identity is all of a sudden lots of British people who had taken their status as European citizens and their identity as European citizens more or less for granted suddenly found it uh, threatened and indeed removed from them uh, and that they then have had to think about that. Um, Where do you imagine that Remainer identity and energy now going? Will everybody just shrug, think, okay, well, we tried, we got beaten, we give up? Or have we not heard the last of it? I think that really does largely depend on what does happen next. I do feel like that identity has kind of gone into abeyance since the election win, uh, since the clear declaration of this January 31st date for leaving and then the timetable of withdrawal and so on uh, throughout this year. Um, I think even some of the most absolute tooth and claw dedicated continuity remainers have felt that actually there's really very little they can do about this. Nothing, in fact. And therefore, they might as well, you know, take their signs and go home. Um, I do think there is now, you know, so the... There are some people talking already about a campaign to rejoin, but I don't think there's a huge amount of popular energy to support that. And that's a decades-long project, surely. Absolutely. I don't think they're going to whip up a lot of support for that in the immediate future, shall we say. Um, I do think that if those, you know, the people in that campaign and the supporters of that campaign are thinking a little more strategically and intelligently, it ought to be a case of looking to try to lobby for the best possible deal for their interests and looking to try to lobby for the things they care about from Mm. the EU to continue. Um, And, you know, I hope that that's where some of the energy will go. But, of course... I do think, again, that the Remain identity you talk about is fascinating, historically fascinating kind of as as a movement and is actually a sort of diverse movement because there are people in there who are sort of fairly soft Remainers and there are people who are very, very hardcore and I don't think they're going to stop, you know, sort of waving their EU flags and um, shouting at people on Twitter uh, any more than the Brexiteers do. Michael Binion and Alex von Tunzelman there will be back with more from you both in just a moment. But first, here is Monocle's Bill Looty with some of the other stories we're following today. More than 100 people are now known to have died following an outbreak of coronavirus in China. Authorities in the country are battling to contain the virus, which has now spread to 16 other countries. Wearing masks in public is now mandatory in some Chinese cities. The U.S. State Department has removed an NPR reporter from the press pool for Mike Pompeo's upcoming foreign trip. It comes days after the Secretary of State was grilled by another NPR journalist. The broadcaster says it has not given a reason behind Michelle Kellerman's ban. 
And finally, a spending watchdog in the UK has found that the government's multi-million pound campaign to prepare the public for leaving the European Union appears to have had little impact. The National Audit Office said it was not clear whether it left people significantly better prepared. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Bill. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller here with Alex von Tunzelman and Michael Binion. Let's look now at New Zealand, which is having an election in September, which is obviously a long time away. It is, and I've done the maths, eight months away. This means that Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern has decided to spend pretty much the entire final third of her first term campaigning for a second. It also means that it falls to us right here in the next few minutes to sort out what actually is the correct length for an election campaign. By way of possibly helpful contrast, the current election campaign in Ireland will conclude on February 8th after a campaign of just 25 days. Um, Michael, my views on this are a bit skewed because I'm a massive nerd who actually quite enjoys elections. But seriously, uh, in in terms of you know keeping a functioning democracy on the road, uh, are, better, are short campaigns better than long ones? Oh, definitely. Because the short campaign means that you can focus on everything, summing it all up straight away, put it to the electorate before they get bored, fed up and switch off. It also means you have much more time to actually get on with legislation. Uh, You can't really uh, introduce sensible discussions and laws free of complete partisan bias. Uh, Well, it's difficult to produce any laws free of partisan bias, but during an election campaign, it's much more difficult. And if you block off a third, practically, of your entire legislative period uh, in campaigning, then actually to do the things, you've got less time for it. Uh, Alex, why would a politician say, well... For example, for actual example, Jacinda Ardern potentially prefer a longer campaign. It doesn't, unless I'm missing something, it, it doesn't strike me as an indicator of confidence. It sort of seems to suggest, well, let's spin this out as long as we possibly can and, and, and hope our luck changes. I hope everyone gets so bored, perhaps. That's the plan. <laughs> I mean, yes, and I think particularly in New Zealand, where, you know, parliamentary terms are this kind of incredibly short three-year terms, um, this is, as Michael says, sort of extraordinary amount of time to spend talking about it. I mean, I think, you know, um, Arden's had a couple of setbacks recently and quite possibly I think the way she's seeing it is that a long debate um, will be perhaps, you know, more, uh, allow more things to come out, be more civilised, less kind of punchy. But of course, the downside of that is exactly what Michael says, is that people will simply lose interest. There are along along lines, you know, with alongside this um, election campaign, there are two big referendums happening in New Zealand at the same time, which I think will get people very exercised. One is about the legalisation of marijuana and the other one is about the legalisation of euthanasia. And I do expect there to be quite a lot of discussion on those, but also those are, um, you know, quite emotive potentially kind of cross-party, cross-political issues, which have, you know, which don't necessarily then bring people in for the central campaign. Or there's a possibility that you might find that those uh, issues really energise some of the smaller parties, some of the different parties. So, you know, we know that she had a a hard time building a coalition last time. It'll be interesting to see uh, what the result of this is. It could be very much not what she has in mind. Uh, Michael, is is there an argument here against uh, fixed term parliaments, which which with which the United Kingdom has recently experimented, which is of course the system on which the United States is based? Because in the United States, as we now know, whether anybody actually intends to or wants to or not, um, every president spends the last two years of a term running, well certainly of their first term, running for re-election. 
Yes. Well, I think in the United States, it would be impossible to change that because it would open the door to capricious rule and possible abuse of, abuse of power, particularly as the presidency holds a great deal of power and is not accountable directly to Congress in the same way that the prime minister is accountable to parliament. So I don't think it would be wise or sensible. But what would possibly be sensible is to... Um, increase the length of time that the House of Representatives sit in the House before election. They only sit for two years, which means they are in permanent campaigning mm. mode, which means that uh, lobbying and special interest groups have the perfect chance to influence a representative uh, because they need the money for their camp c continual campaigning, which skews the whole of American politics, really. And I think that's a very poor system. Uh, whether you could have uh, the House of Representatives uh, falling and, and calling a, a snap, you know, congressional election outside the fixed terms, I think it'd be very difficult. I mean, the American Constitution has many checks and balances, too many, I think, but to change it would, would really unleash uh, mayhem. Um, Alex, Michael mentioned there the fact that, and it's, I, I think it's a pretty established fact, that voters tend to get bored and annoyed with election campaigns of a particular length. Um, is there any evidence that you're aware of, or indeed in your personal experience of being yourself a voter, of a political campaign actually, or an election campaign actually changing anybody's mind? Oh, yes, I think they do change minds. Um, I think, they, well, I mean, very recently, 2017 in the UK, I think, you know, Theresa May started with a considerable advantage, which then... <laughs> you, you, you make a fair point. <laughs> very quickly was thrown away. So, no, I think definitely you can change minds, but also, you know, that it depends very much... <laughs> It depends completely on what happens. And that campaign was also being influenced by, you know, I think uh, some very bad policy decisions by her you know which or by her team you know that actually really changed the direction of that such as the sort of social care policies and so on um and and i think at some point even the a promise to bring back fox hunting is incredibly divisive in, in the uk <laughs> a sort of thing you absolutely really don't want to talk about at all um but yes, I mean, so I think they, they certainly can change minds. But I do think these very long campaigns, if the goal is to kind of create a more civilised, sedate discussion, I do worry that such a long one will indeed slip over into simple fatigue. So, Michael, I, I was once talking to an American political journalist about the long campaign, and they were in favour of it, partly because as a political journalist, they were obviously just a massive nerd who really enjoys campaigns. But they also made the point that it, you should subject somebody seeking high office, especially the presidents of the United States, to a fairly rigorous stress test, because if they can't stand up, as he more or less put it, to two years of being kicked around by the voters and the media and their opponents, then how are they going to stand up to the presidency? Yes, well, that's a fair point. Uh, and I think a uh, campaign does actually put a lot of stress on, well, a lot of uh, rigorous examination of a leader's record. Um, if you really enjoy campaigns and you like the sort of knockabout of uh, continuous campaigning, why not move to Italy? Because there they have been <laughs> 67th government in 73 years, which is pretty much a record anywhere in the Western world. And uh, Italy is in permanent campaign mode, although the result is, uh, you know, whatever the campaign, the result comes out the same, a sort of muddle. 
uh, and they just start again. That is, of course, the least of many good reasons uh, for moving to Italy. Uh, We shall move (laughs) on, uh, however, to finally on today's news panel, do spare a thought for the Chartered Management Institute, a hitherto obscure British outfit presently serving as this week's occupant of the online pillory. They have prompted widespread mockery for suggesting that discussion of sport in workplaces should be limited because it may exclude women and or serve as some sort of gateway to further egregious laddishness. The question thus posed is, have the Chartered Management Institute hit this one out of the park or dropped the ball? Alex, is it as silly as a lot of people leapt to suggest? Well, we've all heard of that organisation now, so perhaps they've (laughs) achieved achieved their goal. Um, I mean, obviously, it's the sort of thing where you think maybe there is some motive like that, because really, why would you make such an obviously full of holes suggestion in public? First of all, to suggest that it's somehow sexist to talk about sport, um, as if no women at all could possibly be interested in sport or have any opinions on it or knowledge about it, um, you know, which is ludicrous. uh, But also... Also then to suggest that you should uh, somehow introduce bans and limits on what people can talk about in office, which, of course, sparks off all the free speech defenders and everybody, you know. And, and you know, so how dare they make rules to control us? All of this sort of kicking off at once. Um, you, you do have to feel for whichever employee of a given office is endowed with the task of enforcing these rules. Yes, absolutely. Yes, no more talk about sport. Shush. <laughs> no, you <laughs> well, can't that, say that. That's a fairly convincing application <laughs> yeah, for the job exactly. right there, Alex. I mean, I'm not really sure how you're supposed to stop people in that respect yes but I mean completely unenforceable I mean obviously this is ludicrous so you know you sort of wonder why why organizations do come out with this kind of ludicrous suggestion if it's not for the fact of simply giving themselves uh, their little 15 minutes or, or in this case a couple of days so far of being a being a some well, famous whipping I would have to say as a male, I'd be absolutely delighted if there was a <laughs> ban on talking about sport, particularly, as she said, it can lead to laddishness and backslapping. And I don't want to be sitting there typing away <laughs> and somebody said, did you see that girl start slapping my back? You know, that would drive me mad. Well, uh, absolutely. Also very sexist to assume that all men are interested in sport. Yeah, not at all. I am reminded there was a Melbourne journalist and in Melbourne of all cities in the world, it's very hard to go anywhere without walking into some sort of conversation about sport uh, in Melbourne's case Australian Rules Football a subject in which I am more than capable of holding my own book still in all good stores but there was a Melbourne journalist whose name momentarily escapes me and you will like this Michael he tried to launch something called the Anti-Football League oh, yes. uh, and his idea was that members of it could wear a lapel badge shaped like a cube uh, i.e. evocative of something which would not bounce uh, <laughs> and, and therefore especially during Melbourne's winter could find people at other social gatherings who were similarly uninterested. Oh, that would be very good. That would be very good. I, I mean, anyone who um, suffers uh, having to pretend you know about sport. I mean, I remember as a student, that was the worst thing in Greece. I went to get my hair cut and I sat there and he said, English, English, Manchester United. And then he <laughs> immediately started in broken English asking me about various people in Manchester United. I didn't want to be offensive. I knew absolutely nothing about it. Because, Alex, the, 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 the truth here, isn't it, is that every kind of conversation 
or any any con- any subject of conversation, it's going to exclude somebody within earshot because people are just going to talk about things in which you are not interested. I, I am at this point, it's not quite the same thing, but nonetheless reminded of the, the melancholic rage that descended on a pub quiz qu- team I was in uh, once. And we were doing pretty well up until that point uh, when the, the quiz master announced that the next round would be questions entirely about the Great British Bake Off, mm. which my team between us had not seen a single second of. <laughs> well, quite. I mean, well, the thing is, of course, you know, all these, and, and I think it's sort of impossible to stop this organic effect of, now, many of us, and Michael sounds like he'd probably know the misery, which I've also known of, you know, big sporting events like the World Cup, where, you know, you sort of suddenly, you're condemned to <laughs> days of not understanding yes. what anyone's talking about and sitting there just sort of thinking, how quickly can I drink? I had to watch it home? just for that reason. Yes, well, so that's the other, if you can't beat them, join them, yeah. it is an option. But of course, this happens with everything, with television programs, with, you know, with kind of all sorts of forms of fandom. I mean, and probably with politics, to be honest. I mean, you know, as we've been talking about these sort of strong leave and remain identities, I'm sure there are plenty of offices where this has been discussed back and forth and some people are sick to the back teeth of it by now. You see, I think one of the pernicious thing about this suggestion is that it also gets into a much, much bigger, more divisive thing about what men like to talk about and what women like to talk about. So you will immediately get the kickback. All right, we can't talk about sport, so none of you women will talk about makeup or babies. Ever, you see, and straight away you're stereotyping straight away into the what men like to talk about, what women like to talk about, and and there you are. Then you can talk about those differences for the rest of your office uh, working day. The clear solution, I think, is just that nobody should ever talk to each other about anything (laughs) whatsoever. Alex von Tunzelman and Michael Binion, thank you both. Uh, In a moment, we will have the latest opinion from our editorial floor. You're listening to Monocle's House View. Do stay tuned. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller. Finally today, a new commemorative 50 pence coin promises Britain peace, prosperity and friendship with all nations as Brexit becomes official this week. But as our business editor Venetia Rainey says, it may not be the kind of change Brexit voters were expecting. Is that all there is? No matter your view on Brexit, this week feels anticlimactic. Nearly half a century of continental cooperation will end at precisely 11pm on Friday, the sort of time that passes without you even realising it. Big Ben isn't going to bong, and the country will be given 10 million 50p coins engraved with a stomach-turningly empty phrase, peace, prosperity and friendship with all nations. Fine. Even for Remain voters, like myself, irked by such posturing, it's time to move on. As we pointed out in yesterday's minute, Brexit is not done. The following months will see the real negotiations take place, the ones that will shape our economy for decades. The current plan is to finalise a comprehensive trade agreement with the EU by the end of the year. Wishful thinking by anyone's standards. No matter how good it might seem for British businesses, any divergence from our current alignment with EU rules is going to cause problems with our biggest trading partner, which accounts for around half of exports and imports. Much has been made of the opportunities all this opens up with the US and other countries, 
but nearly two-thirds of companies here say the EU deal is more important to their business, according to a survey by the respected Institute of Directors. The clothing and textiles, automotive, pharmaceutical and finance sectors are particularly vulnerable. With New York going strong and Hong Kong, Singapore and Shanghai on the rise, just 22% of financial firms see London as a major hub for their industry in five years' time, according to another recent survey. Millions of businesses are depending on this next stage to be done thoughtfully and thoroughly. Let's hope they get what they deserve. That was Venetia Rainey, and that's all for today's show. Monocle's House View was produced by Daniel Bache and Reese James. Our studio managers were Louis Allen and David Stevens. Coming up at 2000, a brand new edition of Monocle on Design. Monocle's House View returns at the same time tomorrow, 1800 London, 1300 in Toronto. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening. 